the Lord put on quite a display of thunder. Open our Bibles, please. It'll be James again, chapter 5. And if you will follow along as I read the first 11 verses. James 5, verses 1 through 11. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that are come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together in the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them that have reaped have entered into the, the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure in the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just and have been not... And he doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, Lest ye be condemned, behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. May God bless these truths to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we open up your word, and we can just read these words as words, as mere men, but it is only by your spirit that the grace that we need to be sustained daily enables us to hear and to receive and to apply these truths. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that they have been granted unto those of past generations and even the original audience benefited by it and so may we be beneficiaries of such truths even today uh, forgiving us of our sin keeping our minds and hearts focused upon you with a willingness to receive your grace in Christ's name amen last Lord's Day we saw in this chapter the many people of James Area, era, era uh, being uh, recipients of, of tragedies. Uh, there were those who were by powerful men um, exploited, some even murdered, uh, lives were destroyed, uh, situations were, uh, were just torn apart. And James' explanation to them in these particular situations to react, he says, be patient. Be patient, brothers. And he repeats that, if he picked that up from verses 7 on through the end there, four times he uses the word patience. 
And then there's another form of it. He adds two more times. So it's six times altogether, James presents unto those readers and to us this principle of our responsibility to be steadfast in obeying the Lord, steadfast in our relationship and obeying all that God has put before us, and even loving our neighbors, even during times of affliction. These followers of Jesus Christ were being taken advantage of and abused. They were tempted to become bitter and resentful by the very situation in which they were being placed. Yet James doesn't say to them, well, take to the streets, let's destroy the system. He tells them instead that they are to be patient. The whole understanding of this letter, as we saw in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various diverse trials and temptations. So it was a theme all the way through. And James tells them that they are now to be cognizant of the principle to always be patient. What advice would we as Christians give to the believers in China or in India or in North Korea or to any other of the dozen of other nations where Christianity is beat upon? Would we encourage believers to civil unrest? Would we encourage believers to demonstrate publicly? Many these nations, the Christian has to be wise as serpent and harmless as doves if he wants to stay alive. The furtherance of the kingdom of God isn't going to act like that. Yet we are still thankful for the many democracies, countries around the world in which we are able to live and provide political protest in, in the free press where minorities, minorities can be legally recognized, even as Christians. And we can say things that we need to say, and justice can be provided for those who are oppressed. But in most of the world, those things are not the same. For the church and most of the world in which we live, the product of James' message, to be patient, waiting for the end of the times when the Lord will return, to continue to preach the gospel, and to live according to what James has been writing, is true for them. Friends, nothing's going to change until the Lord comes. That's the message of the New Testament. The heart of man will still be desperately wicked. And the God of this world will continue to blind the eyes of those who would see. Governments, indeed, will oppress. Injustices and abuse will continue. And sure, there will be those who will support and provide opportunity for believers But nonetheless, it is our directive given by James here to be patient, to be steadfast, and to be sweet. And I'll explain those as we go on. Our time this morning, we'll look at at these three exhortations that James has given. And the first is to be patient. Look at verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, in other words, the farmer, waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the latter and early and latter rains. The farmer, as a matter of routine, plows the field, he sows the seed, he waits for the rain, 
he has a process because he's waiting as he does as the years have gone by in the past with his experience on the covenant promise that God will bring springtime and harvest. That's God's promise to man. Those things will occur. They will happen. The farmer has the experience in knowing the Lord's fulfillment in the past. So he plants his seeds and he brings his harvest at the appropriate time. He recognizes that it is impossible for him to change seasons or to change the routine for which God has set up because God's organization is perfect. And so God has a time for everything that he brings into our lives. Yeah, we're, we're ignorant of the schedule, but we're not ignorant of his sovereignty. We're ignorant of when this is going to take place or how it's going to take place, but we recognize that he is sovereign in all things, and we are not ignorant to our duty. I think sometimes we become angry when we think, why God waits? Why did this have to happen? Why the pain? Why the suffering? Why the hardship? Those are questions that we lay before him. And he doesn't tell us the reasons for our sufferings, but he does give us grace to see us through in each of those situations, to manage the sufferings. And he tells us to be patient, to be patient. Every day we receive the providence of God, and nothing can rob us from that. That's secure within our own lives and secure with what we do. Every time we recognize that things come at the right time. Think back to the Old Testament and King Saul was quite the unusual character. And there was a time when there was a war between the Philistines and Israel. And his good prophet Samuel comes to him and he says, Saul, I want you to go to the city of Gilgal and wait for me. And Saul becomes a little itchy, and he waits one day, two days, three days, all the way down to seven days, and he says, I can't wait anymore. And he goes in, and he offers sacrifice. And just at the time that he offers this burnt offering to the Lord, Samuel steps in. (laughs) And it's just like he's caught with his hand in the cookie jar. How could the king of Israel not be obedient to the God of Israel? How come he couldn't wait and be obedient to what God had commanded him to do at his time, at his schedule? His impatience made him unfit to be king, simply because of that. James tells his people, God is going to deal with the wicked wealthy. Be patient and face the suffering. He's right that to them, and he recognizes what they're going through and all the hardships, and they could say, but James, you don't know. And James says, I do know that God knows. Be patient. And it's interesting, he doesn't tell them to retaliate. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6. Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on one cheek, offer thee also the other. And to him that taketh away the cloak, forbid not to take away your coat also. Was Jesus pattering, 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 pattering a form of new legislature for the Maryland State uh, uh, Assembly? Was he saying, well, if they come and they steal your car, call them back and say, here's the keys from my house. Have that also. 
Hardly. Nothing to do with that. But Jesus is laying down a pattern for Christian living, namely that believers are never personally responsible to provoke. In fact, he would rather suffer in that very moment the way more than was stolen from him than to fail to love his enemy. That's the proper hyperbole. The nature of things that James receives here for his recipients who were badly abused by the powerful wealthy, what were they to do? The obvious one, the flesh one, well, let's go and burn down their fields. I worked for you this whole week and you didn't give me one red cent. I would go to the court and you almost threw me into prison because I didn't receive what I was supposed to receive. So let's, let's, this is what we'll do. Let's go and burn down their fields. That'll teach them. Let's go and wait for them at night and they come down the road and let's beat them up. Let's give them what they deserve. Treat him as badly as he has treated you. Think how often children retaliate back to their siblings. Ah, he did it first, and there's a pulling of the hair, and there's a biting, and there's a throwing of a toy, and there's crying, and there's tears, and so forth. And it just can't get enough of each other and to retaliate. Kind for kind. Sometimes it's fueled by parents. Stand up for yourself. Don't let them do that. And so all through life, it's an attitude that's drummed into our children from the earliest days. But the Bible is teaching patience and non-retaliation. We are not at all to be concerned with defending ourselves. Men, indeed, may assault us and abuse us. And all they're doing is saying is wrong, but how important it is to defend ourselves. Is it the glory of Jesus Christ that is being attacked? Is it the good of the congregation of God that is being damaged? Is it my neighbor's well-being that is being under threat? Are they suffering? My family? No, it's only my reputation. It's only my sensitivity, my thick skin that's being hurt. Why defend myself? Be patient. Yeah, Christians are indeed called upon to defend at times. Many things, even our lives. There are great principles of the sacredness of life, the sacredness of the truth of scriptures to stand to defend such things. Even weak brethren. But that's entirely different. James is telling these Christians who were abused by the wealthy men, Indeed, not to be concerned about their rights. They needed food. They needed money. They needed a place to stay. But if you remember the words of Jesus, someone's always taking care of those things, putting the kingdom of God first. He said, be patient. Interesting study in the book of Philippians in the very early chapters, you find Paul writing to the church, And he's talking to members who felt that they were being ignored. Some of the men and some of the women within the church, their proper place was being ignored, slighted. They felt, especially husbands and wives, this very, very principle. So Paul writes them, and he gives them this clear verse of preference, kind of a devastating principle. 
He says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Whatever complaints or grumblings or attitudes there were that were were founded within their own hearts, he said, let this mind, let this attitude be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. When they sought to kill him as a baby, what did he do? He could have called fire down from heaven and, and consumed the palace of Herod. Later on in his life, when he was abused and despised and rejected, he didn't insist on his rights. Tell them that I have a kingdom that's coming. Near the end of his life, he could have told them that I am God's only son. I don't have a right to be taken as a prisoner or to be beaten or to be tortured or to be crucified. And he could have called ten thousands of angels down. But he patiently waited. He said nothing. He committed his life into his father's hands. Today our society is being torn apart by men and women who insist upon their rights. Marriages flounder. Families are torn apart simply because of this. Companies collapse because management and workers insist on my rights in this situation. Around the world, countries are torn apart because governments and citizens, tribes and classes are insisting on their rights. And what's worse, Christian fellowships are being broken up because of those very principles. My rights, I'm impatient. I think the key word that the Apostle James is presenting here is the word patience. We never act simply because I'm running out of patience. Do you ever say that? Or ever think that? My action is a result because I don't have any more patience. And then I do something that's totally off the wall. We act because there is a great principle of Scripture that I must obey. And I think it's suspicious when people sometimes come along and they read to hear the Word of God and it comes out and they say, well, but you don't know my situation. You don't know what I've gone through. You know what's been said. Therefore, this piece of passage of Scripture doesn't fit with me at this time. Besides, God understands. I think of the incident when Peter's life, when he came to the garden and he struck the ear of the servant of the high priest, Malchus. Jesus was being arrested and Peter wanted to split Malchus's head open. He was incised. He was outraged. He was the defender of the Savior. Murder was in his heart. Nothing seemed more natural to him. His impatience with the commands of God, simply didn't fit. So he acted. No, he reacted. He behaved in such a fashion. It was evil. Peter had to understand, as James commands to his readers, that the Lord Jesus did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that was God's means of saving men, to put them in difficult places in order that his will can be accomplished to act rashly, to, burt, to blurt out anger words, is to take up a weapon and lose all credibility, all principles of usefulness and divine blessing. The first lesson that young Christians are to learn and to be buried within their hearts is patience. 
and the lesson that all believers, irrespective of their age, to the oldest saints, be patient then, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. We can't learn it enough and relearn it and apply it. Verse 8, the second principle James lays here for us is to be steadfast. He writes, be also patient, establish your hearts. The NIV translates that phrase to be standing firm. When you hear patience, it kind of sounds like a passive word, doesn't it? Well, just be patient. I just sit back and be patient. But he adds to this a principle that takes it a step beyond the principle of we think of as patience. It is the idea of endurance and perseverance. And I think if you read the Apostle Paul's life, you see all through his life this very principle of endurance. Take a look at verse 10 of our text. He says, Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and patience. (laughs) The prophets. If you read in between the lines to when these men lived, their own generation, their own people, looked upon them as kooks, kind of deranged. Men who had just a little bit too much of extreme. Their religion was overbalanced. And so the people didn't listen to them. And they didn't obey. Parents would tell their children, hey, let's not get too much with this Jehovah stuff because you're going to end up like a prophet. You're going to end up living like these men. They were a little bit hated and despised. They were loners, like John the Baptist living in the wilderness, shunned by the respectable parts of society because of their thoughts and their actions. And I think there were probably times when they had kind of wondered if they were right. They were the only ones. They thought that maybe the rest of the country, maybe the rest of Israel is right, and maybe I'm wrong. I think of Noah and all of the scorn and ridicule that was put upon him. (laughs) He becomes the butt end of every drunkard's joke in his particular time, preaching righteousness to the whole world with nobody listening. Day after day, month after month, year after year. And then thinking of the confidence that he placed within his sons and his daughters-in-law for them to go out every single day and start to cut the wood down and frame it and form it and bring it back to have this giant ark built. Day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year. Doing the same thing. Brethren, this is steadfast. And there were periods when everything went against him. James speaks of Job, a righteous man, a man who was rising every day making sacrifice and prayers for his children just in case they didn't wake up in their day and make the same offerings and same offerings of prayer and sacrifice for themselves before the Lord. Scripture tells us he was a prosperous man. He was generous to the poor. He understood his responsibilities to his fellow man and he gave forth in such a fashion. But I think some people would find it easy to dismiss that him as being a righteous man because God had blessed him with so many things. Therefore, it's easy to be godly and it's easy to be such. But then all of a sudden, he loses everything. His livestock, his servants, 
his own children by some weird, we would say, accidents, you know. And all that was left was a wife who told him, curse God and die. She hurls it to his face, sitting on the ash heap, and everything is just lost around him. His words to her, you were talking like one of the foolish women. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? That's the voice of the steadfast man. Think of his situation. Think on how he lived, receiving these things from God. You've heard of the patience of Job, he writes. Well, what was Job's patience? It was his perseverance. It wasn't just him sitting by and just waiting for things to take place. But he persevered in his heart to say, this is what God has given me and I'm here to live for him. Verse 8, then James says, be ye also patient. Be ye also persevering. Be ye also establishing your hearts. There's hardly a man doing a little bit of research here in our time within the Christian church that sets up more of an example as to steadfastness, the Mahidi Dibaj, an Iranian pastor who is now with the Lord. He was released from prison January of 1994. He'd been charged by the Iranians after serving for nine years with apostasy and thrown into prison. 60 years old. For two years, he was in a cage that wouldn't even allow him to lay down to straighten his legs. He suffered tremendously. He received the death sentence three times while he was in prison. He had been a follower of Christ for 45 years. A week before his official death sentence was carried out, Pastor Debaj, the church of Iran, uh, through uh, Reverend Mir, uh, released his final testimony that he read before the tribunal. And the Pastor Mir went ahead and published it in the London Times, and it was seen by the entire world. And the entire world became incised at what was taking place, and they kind of held back on it. Such an international outcry, this publication of this letter that Debaja was released immediately. But within a few days, his pastor friend was arrested. He paid the price, being murdered. At the funeral of Pastor Mir, Debaj says, I should have died, not my brother, Halik. In the weeks that followed, others were murdered, including Pastor Debaj. And the whole principle was for the Iranian government to be able to silence Christianity within the country. Yet Muslims would take charge in crushing Christianity and the idea to eliminate as many Protestant leaders as possible, especially under the Farsi language. This is a little long, and I trust you bear with me as I read his testimony that was read uh, in front of the, the court, in essence, in Iran. This is what he wrote, and this is what was published. It's entitled, Stand Firm. With all humility, I express my gratitude to the judge of all heaven and earth for this precious opportunity. And with brokenness, I wait upon the Lord to deliver me from this court trial according to his promise. I also beg the honored members of the court present to listen with patience to my defense 
and with respect to the name of the Lord. I'm a Christian, a sinner who believes that Jesus died for my sins on the cross and who, by his resurrection and victory over death, has made me righteous in the presence of the Holy God. The true God speaks about this fact in his holy word, the gospel. Jesus means Savior because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins by his own blood and gave us a new life so that we can live for the glory of God by the help of the Holy Spirit and be like a dam against corruption, be a channel of blessing to the healing and protection by his love. In response to this kindness, he has asked me to deny himself, to deny myself, and to be fully surrendered as a follower, and not fear people, even if they kill my body, but rather rely upon the creator of life who has crowned me with a crown of mercy and compassion, and who is the great protector of his beloved son, beloved ones, and the great and their great reward. I have been charged with apostasy. The invisible God who knows our hearts has given assurance to us Christians that we are not among the apostates who will perish, but among believers so that we may save our lives. In Islamic law, an apostate is one who does not believe in God, the prophets, or the resurrection of the dead. We Christians believe in all three. They say, you are a Muslim, and you, you have become a Christian. No. For many years, I had no religion. After searching and studying, I accepted God's call, and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to receive eternal life. People chose their religion, but Christians is chosen by Christ. He says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. From when? Before the foundation of the world. People say, you were a Muslim from your birth. God says, you were a Christian from the beginning. He states that he chose us thousands of years ago, even before the creation of the universe, so that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we may be be his. A Christian means one who belongs to Jesus Christ. The eternal God who sees the end from the beginning and who has chosen me to belong to him, knew from everlasting whose heart would be drawn to him, and and also those who would be willing to sell their faith in in eternity for a pot of porridge. I would rather have the whole world against me, but know that the Almighty God is with me. But, I'm sorry, with me. Be called an apostate, but know that the approval of God and his glory because he looks at the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. For, and for him, who is, who is God in all eternity, nothing is, nothing is impossible. But power in heaven and on earth is in his hands. The Almighty God will raise up anyone who chooses and bring down others, accept some and reject others. Send some to heaven and others to hell. Because God does whatever he desires, who can separate us from the love of God? Or who can destroy the relationship between the creator 
and the creature, or defeat the heart of the faithful one in the Lord. He will, he will be safe and secure under the shadow of the Almighty. Our refuge is the mercy seat of God, who is exalted from the beginning. I know whom I have believed, and I am able and am able to guard what I have entrusted to him to the end until I reach the kingdom of God, the place where the righteous shine like the sun, but where the evildoers will receive their punishment in hell. They tell me, return, but from the arms of my God, to whom can I return? It is right to accept that what people are saying instead of obeying God's word. Is it Is it now 45 years that I am walking with God, the God of miracles, and his kindness upon me is like a shadow, and I owe him for his fatherly love and concern. The love of Jesus has filled all of my being, and I feel the warmth of his love every part of my body. God, who is my glory and honor and protector, has put a seal of approval upon me, through his unsparing blessing and miracles. This test of faith is a clear example. The good and kind God reproves and punishes those who he loves. He tests them in preparation for heaven. The God of Daniel, who protected his friends from the fiery furnace, has protected me for nine years in prison, and all that had happened have turned out for the good and gain. So much so that I am filled with overflowing joy and thankfulness. The God of Job tested my faith and committed in order to strengthen my patience and faithfulness. During these nine years, he, he has freed me from all responsibilities so that under the protection of his blessed name, I would spend my time in prayer and study of the word with heart searching and brokenness and grow in the knowledge of my Lord. I praise the Lord for this unique opportunity. You gave me space in my confidence. My difficult hardships brought healing, and your kindness received me. Oh, what a great blessing God has in store for those who fear him. They obeyed to the object of my evangelizing. But if you find a blind spot near where the well and keep silent... You, that you have sinned. It's a Persian poem. If, if in, it is our religious duty, as, as long as the door of God's mercy is open, to convince evildoers to turn from their sinful ways and find the refuge in him in order to be saved from the wrath of a righteous God that is coming. Jesus Christ says, I am the door. Whoever enters in through me is saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Among the prophets of God, only Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and he is our living intercessor. He is our Savior, and he is the Son of God, to whom to know him means to know eternal life. I am a useless sinner but i have believed in the but i have believed in his beloved person and all of his words and miracles are recorded in the gospels and i have committed my life to his hands life for me is an opportunity to serve him and death is better an opportunity to be with christ therefore 
I am not only satisfied to be in prison with the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus Christ, my Lord, and enter into his kingdom sooner in the place where the elect of God enter everlasting life, but the wicked into everlasting damnation. May the shadow of God's kindness and his hand of blessing and healing be upon you and remain forevermore. Amen. Can you imagine them hearing that? Sitting there, listening to it? Taking those truths and having them seated within his heart. I think this is the most perfect example of what James has set forth in this principle of being patient and steadfast. Be patient also, steadfast, establish your hearts. And what could be added to it, notice the reason why he adds that. Our passage says, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. He says, be patient, be steadfast, firm in our convictions, because what? The Lord's coming near is near. And you notice here, he says, behold, the judge standeth before the door. The time of God's judgment is near. Even at the time of what James is writing here, they understood the principles that were there. The day is coming, the day is near, the judge is there at hand. Which takes us to our third principle, and it's not necessarily found in the actual words of the text, but I've marked it down as be sweet. Be sweet. Be patient, be steadfast, but be sweet. Verse 9. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. You know what he's talking about? Murmuring. Murmuring. Murmuring against one another. Of course, there's nobody here that does any of that. It's far from it. In Hebrew, there wasn't a word for it, and it was written down literally as murmur, 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 just the hearing of the, the words that were there. It's a dreadful sin. Often said that it's better to be mute than to be murmuring. It is the devil's music. It's everywhere in the world in which we live. There's not a time when complaints are not thrown about politicians or the president's family, football coaches, business tycoons. It's from our very lips to pecked upon every type of electronic device that we use today. There's not a newspaper or news broadcast that does not sneer about the stupidity and the awkwardness and the ineptitude of well-known famous people. And we're apt to follow in that train. Grumbling is possibly the response to suffering of our own difficulties. We say it simply because it's just a release. You're under pressure. You crack. You take it out on someone else. Children of Israel, redeemed after 430 years in in Egypt. And they get out on their journey from from Egypt to the promised land. And it literally is only a 10-day journey. That's how long it would have taken. But from the moment they got out, all they did was grumble, complain, and murmur. I had a dear old friend who used to say, it was the grumbling song. They grumbled on Monday, grumbled on Tuesday, grumbled on Wednesday, Tuesday. They grumbled the whole day through, and that's all it was. They had all of the horrors of Egypt, and then they get into the wilderness, and what do they say? Take us back to Egypt. 
we'd just assume be under Pharaoh. Didn't live out here. We just assumed be under Pharaoh's bondage again. But they murmured through the wilderness and they continued to do so until that generation died. God's people may groan and God hears them and he answers. But God's people may never grumble. I think it's the great mark of unbelief. I think after one hour in heaven, we're going to regret all of that grumbling and murmuring. After one hour in heaven, not even, we'll understand how I, why we have ever complained at all. Remember the great exhortation in Ephesians 4, 2. Paul says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. I think, as he has mentions here, Job is a fantastic example in this principle. Job comes along in life and he hears all of the counsel from his friends, his helpers. And they come and they give him words and he sits and he listens to them. All of the things that they had gone, all of the unhappy advice. James concludes, verse 11, He have heard of the patience of Job. And again, this isn't just sitting. This isn't just showing by, but it's a patience, it's a steadfastness, it's a perseverance. You've heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. How does the book of Job end? Pretty nice, you know. He receives from the hand of the Lord restoration and divine blessing. And that's what the Lord finally brings about in life, doesn't it? Patience and perseverance in the end. We read the end of the book and we know what takes place. But for the believer, patience and perseverance and living a sweet life brings forth restoration and reward from our Lord. We understand that God has the final vote. Actually, he's got the only vote there ever is. The judge is coming and he will judge all wrongs and he will understand the righteous and he will understand the wicked and all things will be properly made. James also presents here the image of God. He says, the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. With all of that this chapter insists upon, the righteousness and the justice of God, James doesn't want us to forget another aspect of the Lord. Who is James to Jesus? Remember that? We might say like a half-brother, doesn't he? Think of all of the years that James spent with Jesus and all the things that he saw. You know, think of his mind as he's writing this down. He's thinking of the Lord and thinking of all things. And he says, boy, his life was full of tender mercies and love and kindness and truth. Example after example just kind of run through his mind, reflections of, of the past. All of the trials and tribulations that he saw and he witnessed And how Jesus reacted. Remember that the Lord Jesus, who let a sinful woman come and kneel at his feet, weep over them, is the one who rules the world. Think how he acted and reacted to all of the people, sinners alike, how he dealt with them. Paul was quite alone when he wrote to Timothy and he said, At my first defense, no man stood with me. All forsook me. Here, 2 Timothy, we've gone through that book already. 
And he says, I'm in prison and there's nobody else. They all forsook me. Then he says, but the Lord was with me. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Jesus was with him, irrespective of all the trials and the hardships of life. Brethren, the best of men are sinners. We are not full of compassion and mercy. But the God who controls our lives is. It's to him to whom we owe our everything in our times of pain and loss. He is with us in our loneliness. Paul says, and the, God, and the Lord shall deliver me from all the evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. We will not leave, he will not leave us. Be patient, be steadfast, and be sweet. Let's pray. Father, we oftentimes speak of knowing each other, but we really don't know. We don't know the trials or the struggles or the attitudes that each of us have. We have sometimes evaluated each other quite wrongly. And we've placed burdens upon each other as we ought not. In the life in which we live, you are the sovereign of over all things. And you've permitted things into our life in order that we might profit in order that we might honor you in being the kind of people, the kind of children who understand your word and are able to live according to your will. We are often attracted to or um, negatively found ourselves wandering in the way of the world in which we live. Yet we're called out of that world and the type of life that we are to live is one that is in an opposite direction. We are to be Uh, shining examples of patience, of steadfastness, and showing forth the love that Jesus Christ has first placed upon our hearts. By ourselves, we can't. And yet, Lord, by your grace, we are able to do so. May, Father, we end up being the blessings that you have called us to do, helping us to see that the trials that we go through, the uh, conflicts that are involved in, are often permitted in order that we can be refined in order that we might be more like Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.